That's kind of one of the issues we're going to be working on this Wednesday, as, or on Wednesdays, as we kind of begin going through the book of James and kind of talking about uh, how to integrate uh, our, you know, fine print with our billboards, <laughs> so to speak. And a lot of that, again, is just, um, it's just maturing, it's just growing uh, in God. And they wanted me kind of just to, because um, we are kind of doing some different things here on Wednesday night, so just a couple of housekeeping things. Um, for those of you um, that maybe are available to help, uh, Janie's got a sign-up sheet here. And what we're kind of trying to do on Wednesday nights is last year we tried to do the, the family time where the families all kind of brought something kind of more like a potluck and just felt like it was just a, um, a lot of um, hassle uh, for parents uh, trying to get home and get kids and to get here and to get something prepared. And so we kind of got feedback last year that that was just kind of a hindrance um, for them. And so they would just not come and then they would just come kind of for the um, teaching time. And so this year we decided we're going to just try to provide everything. And so tonight they uh, just provided the entire meal. And then there have been people that are very gracious about just signing up to kind of help serve um, the, the meal. So there's just a lot of obviously families here with small kids. And so just serving. Um, I think uh, cleanup. Uh, um, they've got, I think, the preparation of the meals, I think, is kind of being covered, um, but they just kind of need some help. Um, and so Janie's got uh, September um, through October on here. Some of you have already signed up. I think that if you've already done that, your name is typed in here. Um, so if you're interested, um, there's just opportunities to serve. And the, the great thing is you get to eat. So, you know, when you're done, you get to eat whatever's being served that night, and the food tonight was very, very good, so uh, it's definitely worth your time and effort. So if you want to uh, do that, what I'll do is we'll kind of just try to pass it around. I don't like passing, you know, clipboards because they're such a distraction, but I don't know how else to do it, and I'll be graded on this when I get home, so if there's a bunch of blank spots, she'll know I didn't do it right. Um, other thing is they, they kind of wanted me just again to remind you kind of how we're doing and we're structuring the time up here. Um, this is going to be kind of like what we did last year. I'm going to uh, just do teaching time. This year they're doing a parenting class. Now, you may not be, you may not have children at home. You may be a grandparent. Um, you may uh, have a role in children's lives in some way. Um, and so they just want me to remind you, if you would like to participate in the parenting class, you, you don't have to have children at home to do that. Um, so you'll have to come up with the rationale as to why you would want to do that because uh, I don't know. So if you want to be in the parenting class, even though you may not be actively parenting, they wanted me to let you know that you can, you can do that. You don't have to come to this. So I don't know if they're just trying to rescue you or what uh, the deal is on that. Today's Carolyn's birthday. Happy birthday, Carolyn. That's nice. I heard Scott was really obnoxious today. Yes. I'll be talking to you later about that. <laughs> okay, if you got your Bibles with you, invite you just to open up to the book of James. If you're here tonight and you, uh, you don't have a Bible, please let us know. We would love uh, to provide one for you. 
So again, as we kind of just really begin to, to dive into really kind of a new book, uh, new focus, last year we kind of just talked about, you know, uh, habits of happiness or how to be blessed, and this year I kind of want to just begin to kind of talk about, um, you know, developing a faith that works. And James is really a, a book that really, I think, gives us some practical, very practical, very relevant applications um, of how to walk out, how to live out um, our faith. And so uh, this year as we kind of go through the book of James, there's a number of, of topics you can take the book of James and you can apply it to, uh, but this year I kind of want to just talk about and I want to just really focus in on what is the book of James has have to say to us as it really pertains to uh, developing a faith that really produces the, the godly quality, the godly characteristics that the Lord desires uh, for each one of us. And so as we saw in that video, you know, again, the question, does your billboard match your fine print? And like I said, every one of us in this room, every one of you have a front stage appearance, okay? You see me in, in you know, on the front stage. A lot of you don't see me, what I'm like at home. You may not see what I'm like when I'm in the office, you know? So what we oftentimes just see of each other is what I've oftentimes referred to as that front stage. Um, or the, the front room. No one sees what happens in the back room or when the doors um, are closed. As, as Ray Rice found out, you know, that, that NFL football player. I mean, you know, uh, a, a very dark side of him came to light this week. And, uh, you know, he paid a great penalty for that. And so, again, oftentimes we have kind of um, that division, that divide in our lives. There, there's times where we kind of talk a great faith, but when it really comes to to walking it out in the day-to-day -day things when nobody's looking. Uh, you know, who are you? You know, what kind of faith do you have? And, and so uh, James uh, really kind of focuses in on that in, in talking about how do we develop the kind of characteristics, how do we develop the kind of faith that really is going to make us consistent in what we profess to believe and how we live that belief out. I think every one of us in this room, to varying degrees, struggles with that. You know, there's just are times you're doing things, you're saying things, and it's kind of like, where in the world did that come from? What was I thinking? I mean, there just are times where as a parent, I mean, you just say something and, and it's like, what in the world was that all about? You know, you say something to your spouse, where did that come from? And so oftentimes, again, there is just kind of this divide in how we live versus what we profess, our, our, our belief, our faith uh, in Christ. And so I want to kind of just begin to look at that. And again, I think that one of the reasons many Christians kind of live double lives uh, where their billboard doesn't match the fine print um, again, one of the reasons is because we lack maturity. And so as we kind of go through the series, uh, I want to kind of talk about how do we really develop the kind of faith that will enable us to be more and more like Jesus? Because that really needs to be our goal. 
I'm not here tonight to compare myself to any of you, and I don't want any of you here tonight comparing yourself to me or to anyone around you. Tonight, what we want to do is we want to look at our lives, and we want to compare it to the life of Jesus. And, and what areas, you know, do we feel like we're kind of falling short in? And, and then what does the Word have to say in terms of how we develop and become more and more like Jesus? So let me just kind of start off tonight. I just want to kind of give you just a brief overview um, of the book called James. There are several men uh, in the Bible uh, in the New Testament who are called James. And so for this reason, there's just been, you know, some debate as to who um, scholars uh, believe James uh, was that wrote this epistle. So the introduction to this epistle is simply labels him a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ there in verse 1. And there are two apostles who bore this name. There was a half-brother of, of Jesus, was the uh, son of Mary and Joseph, so a half-brother uh, to Jesus. It was also named Matthew, and we see that in Matthew 13, 55. And it's this James, this half-brother of Jesus, is who many of the scholars believe uh, wrote this epistle called James. Now what is interesting is if uh, this writer, James, was indeed the half-brother of Jesus, and, and I've heard, you know, comics, you know, make jokes about that, you know, imagine growing up, you know, as Jesus, you know, it, it was your brother, you know, and uh, nothing would ever be Jesus's fault. Uh, I didn't do it, Jesus did it. Oh, son, Jesus couldn't do it, Jesus is perfect, you know, and so there's all these, you know, kind of jokes about having grown up if you were a brother or sister um, to Jesus, but uh, this is who many of the scholars believe. Now, if he was indeed uh, this particular James and he was the half-brother of Jesus, many people, interesting, believe that uh, James was not converted during Christ's earthly ministry. And uh, John's Gospel, chapter 7, kind of alludes to that. And in all probability, he really probably uh, came to faith in Christ after the resurrection of Jesus Christ as Jesus was kind of appearing uh, to, uh, to different individuals and groups of people before his ascension to the Father. Uh, James is also numbered among the 12 in the upper room there in Acts 1.14. James was also a very prominent leader in the first church council in Jerusalem. And um, James was a person that the apostle Paul learned a lot from in Paul's early developmental spiritual years after Paul's conversion there on the road to Damascus. He credits James with someone uh, who really uh, uh, educated him and taught him a lot about the Christian faith. It was also because of James' leadership in this Jerusalem council that he was kind of recognized as the bishop of Jerusalem. So he was someone who held a very high position, a greatly respected throughout the early church. Uh, he was a strict Jew. Uh, he was uh, very tolerant uh, towards Gentiles. He accepted uh, them among um, uh, the other uh, Jewish believers. Um, he was, according to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, the writer of this epistle, uh, Josephus said uh, he was a meticulous historian. Uh, Josephus was, and he identified James as the brother of Jesus uh, and said what was called Christ, whose name was James. Now, I want to kind of just again give you 
the um, account of James' martyrdom, and this was also recorded by Josephus, and this account was um, as follows. You can just see that up there on the screen. Uh, Ananus, the high priest, along with the scribes and Pharisees, took advantage of the absence of the Roman government and assembled the Sanhedrin, commanding James, the brother of Jesus, to proclaim from a temple balcony that Jesus was not the Messiah, thus restraining the multitudes of people who were believing in Christ. Instead, James cried loudly that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, uh, the judge of the world. He was then hurled to the ground, stoned, and finally clubbed to death. And this occurred uh, in A.D. 63. And then it was a few years after that uh, that Titus destroyed the temple. Uh, you know, Jerusalem uh, was taken over and uh, the Jewish uh, people were dispersed at that time. Now, James's epistle, his letter, really was written uh, specifically for Jewish Christians who were residing uh, in outside of Palestine in Gentile communities. And many of these Jewish Christians were probably those uh, that Peter preached to, those that came to faith on the day of Pentecost. And so... Um, they were fairly new to the Christian faith, and so James kind of was providing for them a, an epistle, kind of a how-to manual, and giving very practical uh, application of how to live the Christian life, how to grow in faith, uh, and uh, he uses a lot of Old Testament references to Scripture. So uh, James's basic approach to this epistle was really to present to uh, fairly new Christian believers a practical side to Christianity. Now, what is interesting to me uh, is Luther, Martin Luther, who was one of the great reformers of the church, um, was really uh, very critical uh, and really attacked the book of James, and he wanted it ejected uh, completely from the New Testament. In his printing of the German New Testament, Luther had a, a content page, and in that uh, he had kind of, uh, the books of the Bible were set out and numbered, and at the end of this list, Luther had kind of made a separate list of books, and there were no numbers assigned to them. And that group uh, that, that was kind of set aside off to its own consisted of James, Jude, Hebrews, and Revelation. And these were books that Luther believed were really secondary books and really should not have been included um, in the canon. And he was especially very, very critical um, on the book of James. And I just want to share a couple of comments that, uh, that Luther made. He said, the gospel, the first epistle of John, uh, all of Paul's epistles, especially those to Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, Peter's first epistle are the books which show Christ to you. They teach everything you need to know for your salvation. Even if you were to never see or hear any other book or hear any other teaching in comparison with these, the epistles of James, and get this, is an epistle full of straw because he said it contains nothing evangelical. His biggest contention was on this whole issue of justification uh, to works, and we'll kind of get into that a little bit later, because you remember James is the one that says, hey, faith without works is dead, 
And so there was quite a bit of pushback on this emphasis of this balance between faith uh, and works. And Luther uh, addressed this and he said, in some, he, meaning James, wishes to guard against those who depended on faith without going on to works. And he says, but James neither had the spirit nor the thought, nor the eloquence equal to the task. He does violence to Scripture, he says, um, and contradicts Paul and all Scripture. So needless to say, James was not a big fan of the book of James. And so oftentimes it kind of raises the question that why were some books canonized or, or a part of the uh, scriptures, and why were other books, I'll hear people talk about, you know, the Gospel of Thomas, for instance, which is a book uh, that, that has many um, sayings uh, of Jesus in there. And, and people have read the book of, or the Gospel of Thomas, and, and they, they feel, based on what they read, it really should be part of the canon of scripture. But it was not. And so oftentimes, people wonder, why do we have the books that we have in the Bible, and why were others like the Gospel of Thomas um, left out? And again, it all rested on whether they had passed certain tests or criterion in the eyes of believers. So it's very important to note the church did not create the canon of Scripture. The list that we accept and recognize uh, as the books of the Bible, uh, nor did Constantine. A lot of people say Constantine established that. But again, if you go back and look in history, uh, that is not true either. The church did not determine which books would be called Scripture or, or the inspired Word of God. Instead, the church kind of recognized or they discovered which books had been inspired from their inception. Now, Dr. Norman Geisler, in his book, General Introduction to the Bible, he puts it this way. He said, a book is not the word of God because it is accepted by the people of God. Um, he said, rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. That is, God gives the book its divine authority, not the people of God. They merely recognize the divine authority which God gives to it. So uh, that's kind of how he understands that recognition it's that as people read that, they were so um, taken with what the, they were reading that they recognized certain books had more of a divine nature or there was more of an inspiration to some books than other books. And so as people would, would read these books, there kind of just became this established core of books that seemed to kind of rise above other books in terms of their, uh, their inspiration or their authority uh, or their, uh, the, the sense of it being a very divine um, book. So from the writings of biblical and church history, they really kind of established five criteria or five principles that really kind of guided uh, the recognition and the collection of what we know as the divine uh, canon. So 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, test everything, hold on to the good. So there were five questions, um, they were tests or they were standards that kind of 
uh, began to be applied uh, to every book, letter, and document. And so to the books, letters, documents that passed the test, these were included, they were made part of the canon of Scripture, and those that didn't pass the test, books like the Gospel of Thomas, for example, they were not included. So what were those five questions? Well, first question was, was the book written by a prophet of God? So that was the very first criterion that they would apply to any book, letter, or document. Was this written by a prophet of God? Second question was, was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Frequently, miracles separated the true prophets from the false ones. So, you know, Moses was given miraculous powers to prove his call of God. You see that in Exodus 4. Elijah, he triumphed over the false prophets of Baal by a supernatural act in 1 Kings 18. In Acts 2.22, it says this regarding Jesus. Uh, it says, people of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth by doing wonderful miracles, wonders and signs through him, as you well know. So a miracle is an act of God to confirm the word of God given through a prophet of God to the people of God. And so it was a sign that would substantiate their writings, their teachings. Um, and then th uh, the third question, did the message tell the truth about God? God cannot contradict himself. God cannot say that which is a lie or false. Hebrews 6.18 says, so God has given us both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. And so no book, letter, or document that would have false claims um, could be the word of God. And so for uh, such reasons as these, the church fathers kind of maintained this policy and they kind of just said, if in doubt, throw it out. And so this enhanced the validity of their discernment of the canonical books. Fourth question was, does it come with the power of God? Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is full of living power. It is sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into our innermost thoughts and desires. So the early church um, believed the word of God to be full of living power, that it had the ability to produce, to bring about change in the life of people. They also believed that God's word should have a transforming force for edification, for uh, uh, evangelization. First Peter 1.23 says, for you have been born again. Your new life did not come from your earthly parents because the life they gave you will end in death. But this new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. Our logo for Praise Community Church, a lot of you know that, our mission statement, changing lives through the unchanging word. Uh, we believe the Word of God, the Bible, it has the power to change and affect lives. If the message of a book did not affect its stated goal, if the book, the letter, the document did not have the ability to produce change, transformation in life, then they believed that God was probably not in or behind its message. So the presence of God's transforming power was a very strong indicator that a given book uh, 
was authoritative. It had divine inspiration. Fifth question and final question was, was it accepted by the people of God? First Thessalonians 2.13 says, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. So was it accepted by the people of God as the word of God. So for whatever subsequent debate there may have been about a book's place in the canon, the people in the best position to know its prophetic credentials were those who knew the prophet who wrote it. So when these books were um, collected, uh, when they were read, received, and used by the people of God as the word of God, it kind of just naturally found its way into the canon of Scripture. And again, this, is, uh, um, this practice is often seen in the Bible itself. One such instance is when the uh, Apostle Peter acknowledges Paul's writing as Scripture on par with the Old Testament. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, it says, And remember, the Lord is waiting so that people have time to be saved. This is just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all of his letters. Some of his comments were hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters around to mean something quite different from what he meant, just as they do the other parts of Scripture. And there is referring again, Old Testament, and the result is disaster for them. So this really, in short, and there's a lot more that I could go into on the formation of the canon of Scripture, uh, but it really um, was... Uh, those five questions were very, very pivotal as to what letters, documents, writings uh, became a part of Scripture and, and what did not. And I, and I say all of this uh, because this process of the canonization of Scripture was not just the work of one man. It was not one council or a small group of people in a little room at one time in one place who kind of made this decision, but it was the collective input of many, many people over a span of time. And I say that because I'm not at all influenced by Luther or really anybody else's dislike of the book of James and, and his opinion that this should not have been part of the canon of Scripture. And so, again, it, oftentimes you can look at uh, things like that, and, and people will base their decision, or they'll kind of write it off. And I've been in churches, I think I've told you this before, I was in one particular church one time. I'd been going there for quite a while. And one Sunday morning, the pastor got up and began to preach out of the book of Revelation. And he started his sermon and series on the book of Revelation with this disclaimer. Um, he said, I really don't believe the book of Revelation ever should have been in the Bible. And I, I was just kind of taken back by that, and he kind of went on to explain uh, that he just did not believe uh, that it was helpful. Uh, he just went on and on about why he felt like the book of Revelation, his comment was, just made it in here by the skin of its teeth. And again, I, I'm, I'm oftentimes 
surprised when I hear people say things like that because, again, we want to base those kinds of things maybe on one or two people's opinion. And we have to understand the canonization of Scripture was not the work or the result of one man, one select little committee, you know, that kind of got together at one time, one place, and made that. It, it, again, it was the collective input of many, many, many people over a span of time. And again, kind of revolving around those five criterion that we really arrive at the canon of Scripture. So I really uh, uh, take comments like Luther or really anybody else's regarding whether this particular book or that particular book should have been included in the Scripture. I just take that stuff very, very lightly. And I just point it out uh, to you because I did find it interesting uh, about Luther's uh, feelings on the book of James but again, um, I, I presume that, that many people who uh, believed the, the book of James should have been in here, I think may have been more qualified uh, than him. But, but regardless of whether you agree or disagree with Luther, we have the book of James. And I believe that the book of James really has a lot of practical um, teaching. I think it has a lot of practical application of really how to develop and grow in our faith, how to really kind of go on to become more and more uh, like Jesus. So without a doubt, probably as I said, one of the greatest developmental changes um, that I think uh, every person faces uh, is, is immaturity. It, it's just that unwillingness, uh, that uh, inability uh, to be able to grow spiritually. I think we all know people uh, who maybe kind of get saved or they kind of come to faith in Christ and there's just, there's no growth. There's no development. They kind of just stay in a very kind of infantile faith. Um, and that is not God's desire. That's not his goal for us. His goal for us is when we become Christians is he wants us to grow. He wants us to develop uh, our faith. He wants us to develop our spirituality. And so most people get caught up in conflicts with others, and, and they do so really because they're acting immature. We get ourselves into all kinds of problems when we say immature things. We make immature decisions. We're maybe acting in immature ways. And again, the simple solution is, is we just got to grow up spiritually. And so James, I think, has a lot to say with what that needs to look like as we're growing and developing our faith in Christ. So again, God's will, his purpose, his plan for every one of us here is that we are growing and developing spiritually. In Hebrews 6, 1, it, it there says, again, leaving aside the elementary teachings, when you become a born-again Christian, you need the elementary teachings. You need teaching on baptism, or you need to be baptized. You need teaching on the laying on of hands. You, there, are, there are certain elementary teachings you need to have established when you become a Christian. And when that is done, uh, the writer in Hebrews, Paul says, it is time to move on. It's time to go from the elementary teachings onto maturity. God says to grow and to keep on growing. And that's, again, one of the purposes of the church is that we should be here to help and equip people to grow spiritually, emotionally, mentally, in every way, and have a balanced Christian life. So again, what is maturity, and how do you know if you're on the path toward maturity? 
So again, maturity is not age. Okay, it has nothing to do with how long you've lived or how long you've been a Christian. I mean, you can be a Christian uh, for 50 years and not be mature. Bumper sticker said, I may be getting older, but I refuse to grow up. And again, we've all seen 50, 60, 70-year-old people um, who are just kind of, you know, big kids. Uh, maturity has nothing to do with your age. Granted, God's ideals, we grow older, that we do get more mature, but it's not automatically the case. Maturity is not appearance. Some people may look mature. Um, some people just uh, may look more spiritual than the rest of us. They may kind of have that dignified look. They may have kind of an aura of holiness. Um, but the rest, uh, you can look real spiritual and not be spiritual at all. So it has nothing to do with your appearance. Maturity has nothing to do with achievement, okay? It's not based on your accomplishments. You can accomplish a lot and still be very immature. I think Washington, D.C. is full of this. A lot of, I, I, I'm, I don't, and I'm not picking on anybody. I'm not picking on any party. I think we've got a lot of very immature people running our country right now. Maturity has thing to do with academics. It's not dependent on how many degrees you've gotten, uh, how much education. Uh, when I graduated, you know, I think all of us remember this, graduated from high school, we thought we knew it all. We thought we were done learning, and then we went to college. We kind of discovered, wow, I guess I didn't know that much. I graduated from college, and then I went on to you know, seminary thinking I knew a lot. And I got into seminary and kind of discovered, you know, man, I, I, I knew even less than I thought I did. So again, you can have so many degrees, they call you Dr. Fahrenheit, but that's not going to make you mature. God says maturity is attitude. We talked about that Tuesday morning in our men's group. Dar was there. We just, again, we talked about it, its attitude. Maturity is attitude. Attitude is one of the big things that'll make a difference. Uh, D.L. Moody once said, character is what you are in the dark when nobody's looking. Recognition is what people say about you. Character is what God says about you. God says it's your attitude that determines whether you're mature or not, and God wants you and I to grow up and to have Christ-like attitudes. So how do you measure spiritual maturity? Again, not comparing yourself to other people, but it really comes down to comparing yourself to the Word of God. Where do I measure up in the Word of God? In the book of James, we have what I would call a manual on maturity. And the word mature in Greek, uh, it is translated mature, complete, perfect. James uses this word five times in five chapters. and is a manual on how to grow and deepen in maturity. And he really kind of gives us, again, we're just going to kind of get an overview. We'll get uh, into a lot of the details uh, of this next week. But again, he, one of the... Uh, marks there of maturity is he said a mature person is positive under pressure positive under pressure and i love this i mean you know we'll, we'll get in we're going to get into this particular part of james next week but i mean this guy does not waste any time with introductions i mean you look at james 1 1 
And it's basically, yep, I'm a servant of God. I'm writing to Jews who are dispersed. And then I'm telling you what, this guy doesn't waste any time. He just jumps right into it in verse 2, and he says, consider it pure joy. I mean, he's not, he's not working them up. He's not trying to, you know, butter them up. I, I mean, he just kind of gets right down uh, to the nitty-gritty. He said, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know. Do you know that? He says, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Man, that just stops me right there in my tracks. I think that stops a lot of us, and I think it reveals a lot about us and maybe where we're at in our maturity level, in our spiritual development. Are you positive under pressure? Or do you become bitter and angry and resentful? How do you handle trials? How do you handle tribulation? Since the first test of maturity is how do you react to problems? Do they blow you away? Do they make you nervous, agitated, negative, uptight? Are you like me? Do you grumble and complain and wish it away or wish it on somebody else? How do you handle problems? I was talking to somebody this week, and I, I just was just working on this, and he was talking about something he was going through. And I said, you know, I was just reading something today. I'd like to share it with you. So James 1, 2 says, to count it pure joy. And this smile just immediately left this guy's face. It's like pure joy. I'm like, yeah, isn't that a tall order? He said, I got to go work on that. Christianity is a life. It's not a religion. It's a life. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, he said, I've come that you might have life and have it in abundance. Folks, you'll never have life in abundance if you cannot remain positive or joyful under pressure. Life means problems. No, nobody in this room is immune from it. There's nobody in here tonight that's going to stand up and say, I never have problems in my life. Life means problem, and part of life means solving problems, facing problems, but doing it with the right attitude. So what is your natural attitude? Your natural bent, maybe when things don't go the way you think they should go or the way you want them to go. Are you irritated? Are you negative or are you positive? 
Are you basically a supportive person or are you someone who's very skeptical? Is your life filled with gratitude or grumbling? Are you affirmative or angry most of the time? James 1.12 says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. So it's pure joy and it's a earmark that we're blessed when we persevere under trial. He said, because when you have stood the test, you will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. There's a reward. There is a benefit when you and I persevere under trial. When we count it pure joy, there is a reward for that. And he said, it's the crown of life. Second, a mature person is positive under pressure. A mature person is sensitive to people. James 2.8, again, we're just kind of doing an overview here. He talks about if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. I like that. What is the right thing to do? Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. We've, our, our daughter one time came home and she has a girl at the, at the school that's not nice to her. And it bothers her. It upsets her. And so she was uh, having a birthday party last year. And she really did not want to invite this girl because she wanted to have fun. And she thought if this girl came, there was a really good chance that she was going to try to spoil it. She was going to maybe try to make Megan mad. And so Megan really did not want to invite her. And so she talked to us about that. And, and we kind of, you know, the normal guilt trip kinds of things, you know. Um, and we finally said to her, what do you think Jesus would want you to do? And she said, I think Jesus would want me to invite her to my birthday party and be nice to her. Regardless of what she does, I think that's what Jesus would want me to do. And we said that we think that's what you should do. And so she invited her. And what was, <laughs> what was probably, we probably should have looked at was uh, she made um, on this girl's invitation, um, I'm not inviting, she wrote on the bottom of her, I'm not inviting you because I want you here. I'm inviting you because this is what Jesus would want me to do, so. So we were like, okay, well. Uh, but the girl came and they had a great time. So again, a mature person is someone that's sensitive to people, you know, that they're willing to do for someone what they would want done for them if they were in that situation. That you love your neighbor just as you love yourself, okay? It's not just about our own needs, but that we're able to see beyond our own needs to maybe see other people's needs as well. A sensitive person or people that are sensitive to other people, that they, they understand other people's hurts. They're not just interested in themselves. You know, all of us have children. Part of the immaturity of children is they're just concerned about themselves. They only see themselves. I want this. I want that. I don't care about this person. I just care about my needs. Th those are children. 
And again, we want them to grow up, and we want them to be mature. And so God says love is being interested in others. Love is a mark of maturity. Now again, James chapter 2, 1 through 6, if, if you were to go back and read that, it really, really gets very specific about how maturity reveals itself. It says don't show favoritism. Don't be a snob. Don't look down on other people. Don't judge people by their appearance. Don't insult people. Don't exploit people. And so he says, the second test of maturity is love. How do you treat other people? Paul would say, you know, I may win all kinds of people, the Lord. I may build all kinds of churches. I may lead all these great revivals. I may give money to the poor. But he says, if I have not love, he said, I'm basically a clanging cymbal. I'm just a noisy gong. And it'll never amount to much. Remember, Jesus in Matthew 25, he kind of talks about the judgment day when we're all going to stand before the Lord and he's going to separate us as the sheep from the goats. And he'll say, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in prison, you came and visited me. And the sheep's response will be, when, Lord, when did we do that? When were you sick and we visited you? When were you in prison? When were you thirsty? When were you naked? And Jesus said to them, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Again, it is very, very interesting when you go back and look at that scripture of the sheep and the goats. The one thing, the one criterion, the one standard it points out there that we will be judged for is how we treated and responded to other people. Not how many Bible verses we knew, not how many times we were in church, not our reputation, but how we treated other people, especially the least of them. So a mature person is someone who's sensitive to people. Number three, a mature person has mastered their mouth. <laughs> Ouch. I don't think anybody ever reads that scripture and doesn't cringe to some degree. Is that true? I mean, all of us in this room, it, this is probably, and I think James points out, this is probably one of the hardest things we have to do is to learn to control our mouths. James 3.2 says, we all stumble in many ways. Boy, is that an understatement. It says, we all stumble in many ways if anyone is never at fault in what he says. He is a perfect man or woman, able to keep their whole body in check. Isn't it interesting? Uh, I don't know that it's so much that way now, but I remember growing up, whenever we would go to the doctor, the first thing they always want you to do is stick out your tongue. You kind of put that depressor on there and you kind of look around in there. Again, they would kind of use your tongue as a, a gauge of your uh, health. And God does that spiritually too. Looks at our tongue. How mature are you? Let me see your tongue. In World War II, there was a saying, loose lips sink ships. That's true. Loose lips destroy lives. Loose 
lips hurt people. Definition of gossip, hearing something you like about somebody you don't. It's mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. James says self-control, fruit of self-control really, comes from tongue control. Every one of us in this room have gotten ourselves in a lot of trouble because of things that we have said. And so James kind of gives three illustrations. He says your tongue is like a rudder on a ship. He says your tongue, it's like a bit in a horse's mouth. And he said that little bit can control the direction of a horse. He said, a little rudder on a boat can control the largest of ships. Your tongue, which by size is very insignificant, James says, it controls, it sets the trajectory of your whole life. What you say directs your life. What you say can destroy your life. It can delight people's lives. It can discourage people's lives. James warns us, he says, your tongue, it is a power for good and for evil. You ever heard somebody say, we talked about this a lot last year, I just say what's on my mind. I told you, I I used to admire people like that. There'd be people that they would just say whatever came to their mind. And I would think, wow, I wish I could be like that. I wish I could just say what's on my mind. And they'd be kind of proud of it. They liked being frank or kind of upfront. Just pop off and say whatever's on their mind. Maybe what's on their mind shouldn't be said. Maybe there are some things that we think about that would be best kept to ourselves. The Bible says, you know what? That's not frankness. That's immaturity. That's a lack of self-control. Ephesians 4, verse 29 says, do not let any negative talk come out of your mouth. And again, right there, I think we all read that, and there's just a level at which we cringe. I mean, I think I'm guilty of that. seems like every day, multiple times, Every day, say something to my kids, to my wife, to my coworkers that's negative. And here's what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, don't let any, nothing negative come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs. So we got to watch what we say. When you talk, you don't just say things to build yourself up. We're good at that. But you say things that are going to build up and encourage and inspire other people. If somebody doesn't build somebody else up, if something that somebody says, if it's, you know, the truth, you don't have to say it. 
If it doesn't build up, if it doesn't encourage, if it doesn't inspire, don't say it, even if it's true. Again, that's a mark of maturity. A mature person is someone who knows how to manage their mouth, how to control their tongue. Doesn't matter, again, how long you've been a Christian, if you can't master your mouth, you're missing the whole point. James 1.26 says, if anyone considers himself religious or spiritual, if that is a better word for you, if anyone considers himself spiritual and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his spirituality is worthless. Again, you can memorize hundreds of Bible verses, Never miss a service. But again, he says, if you gossip, if you're tearing down, if you're negative, he says, your spirituality is worthless. If we spread rumors, it's worthless. If we're always saying things that aren't, you know, accurate or we're kind of exaggerating or speaking impulsively, again, it's worthless. Again, the test of our maturity is, are we able to manage our mouths? Are we able to keep a tight rein on our tongue? When Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love, it means with the right attitude, the right timing, the right place, the right location, the right motive. So again, James is giving us here some very practical stuff. Again, he said, it doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible. If your attitude isn't like Christ, we're really missing the whole point. Number five is a mature person is a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. We'll get more into this again later. But James 4, 1 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And here he's kind of, again, alluding to conflict. He says, there are inner quarrels. There is fighting. There are wars in this world. And he says they really come from our own inner desires. You've got something I don't, and I want it. You kill and you covet, and you cannot have what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. So, again, are you a peacemaker? Or are you a troublemaker? Do you like to argue? Are you a contentious person? Are you someone that loves to have or has to have the last word in every argument? Do you get your feelings hurt? Are you uh, defensive? Are you a peacemaker? Are you a troublemaker? So again, the marks of a mature person is the lack of conflict in their own lives. Paul, you know, basically he's right in the church in Corinth. We're going to close here in just a second. I'm having to watch the time here. Paul told the church Corinthians, writing letters to them, he says, you guys are basically acting like a bunch of babies. You're acting very, very immature. He says, you're grumbling, you're arguing. I mean, they were arguing about the Lord's Supper. They were arguing about uh, spiritual gifts. They were arguing about leadership, everything. And so Paul's having to write these letters and trying to set the church and trying to set the people straight because of all of the conflict that was erupting uh, in the churches. And again, why is there so much conflict in the world? Why is there so much conflict maybe in your family? Why is there maybe so much conflict in your marriage if you're here tonight and you're married? Why is there maybe conflict between you and a former friend? 
let's leave it there. I'll pick up on that uh, next week. We'll talk about uh, two reasons for conflict. Um, and again, James says when you ask and you do not receive, you ask with wrong motives. So we'll kind of get into talking about, again, the motivation um, and the, really the two main culprits um, behind uh, conflict. Um, and one of those, uh, again, is uh, pride, and the other one um, is judgmentalism. So we'll kind of talk a little bit more um, about those next week.